and welcome again to another edition of Still Locked In Science. Uh, across Australia on the Community Radio Network, we are coming to you from the relative comfort and safety of our own homes rather than our usual uh, studio time uh, to bring you half an hour of science on the radio. And who are we? Well, I'm Stu, and with me as mostly is Claire. Hello, Stu. Hi, and what have you got for us this week? Well, Stu, you know I do love a good conservation story, and um, I feel, you know, I feel a bit sort of reaching my limit with um, COVID-19 news, so I thought I'd um, switch across back to um, my favourite things to talk about, Um, and one of those favourite things is birds, and I have a rollicking great tale for you about the 40-spotted pardalote. Um, which is a tiny little bird as big as a ping pong ball um, that is extremely rare and lives in Tasmania. And um, a team of scientists who've come up with a truly inventive and very cool way of um, bringing this bird um, back from a deadly parasitic uh, fly larva um, episode slash sort of uh, potential extinction. So... Um, so it's, I think I might have just ruined the story. I don't know. Hmm. It's it's like a it's like a pardalote pandemic. It is a pardalote pandemic. <laughs> Talk about tongue twisters. Pardalote pandemic. Yeah, indeed. Okay, and well, you know, it does make a nice change from from human health concerns. But uh, Chris, what have you got for us this week? Well, I have decided to also do an animal story and also to keep away from the the COVID stories just for a change. Although actually, um, when I was putting together, COVID did make a surprise kind of oh. entry into the story, which I'm sure you will see. But um, no, I am doing a story about uh, dogs. How good are dogs? Pretty good. Great. So good. Turns out they can do like they can do many things. They have great senses of smell. They have great senses of humour often. Um, but turns out <laughs> it's not possible they can also sense magnetic fields. So I'm going to be looking at some recent research about the ability of dogs to detect magnetic fields. And maybe I don't know. I'm going to go through the the way it was done. Uh, maybe this is something that uh, people can try themselves in lockdown on their own pooches to try and. You know, see how they behave and whether it's consistent with this research. It's not just that they pay a lot more attention to you when you're holding a steel dog food can, is it? Because I've <laughs> noticed that myself just by... That's not the actual experiment they did. Steve, oh, good, no, good, no. good. But but great. that is definitely an experiment that you can do with <laughs> consistent results. All right, well, that's great. We've got birds, we've got dogs. Well, let's get on with the show.
I don't know about you, but this week I'm sort of reaching my limit of COVID-19 news. Uh, so I'm going to bring you guys uh, something a little bit different. And you know how much I love a conservation story. Well, let me tell you, this one has it all. Rare and difficult birds. Check. Parasitic worms. Check. Human invention. Check. And of course, like any good story, chicken feathers. Check. Can you fit in some crafting as well, Claire? Oh, my goodness. There is so much crafting in this. How did you know? I think I might have heard this story, yeah. Okay, great. Well, um, strap yourselves in, even though you might have heard it, because it is a rollicking good tale. It is the story of the 40-spotted partalote. So let's start at the start. The 40-spotted partalote is an extremely rare Tasmanian songbird. So it's about the size of a ping pong ball. It has lovely green feathers, very olive green, and a smattering of, you guessed it, spots on its wings. Would there be 40 spots? I assume. I assume. Um, Now, when I say rare, I mean so rare it is about to go extinct caused mostly by deforestation across much of mainland Tasmania and it now survives in pockets mostly on islands off the east coast of Tassie so think your Bruni Islands and your Mariah Islands and it's in very small numbers. Uh, What is also very remarkable about the 40 spotted partalote is that they forage mostly in the foliage of white gums and uh, what they eat there is something called manna or mana, uh, which is a sweet and crystallised form of tree sap. Um, now, I'm told that many Australian feeds, sorry, I'm told that many Australian birds feed on mana, but these little birds are unique because they sort of farm it. So they use their beaks um, to put these tiny little nicks in leaves and stems. Um, and through these little nicks, the white gum actually stimulates more of this mana production. So they're not only sort of eating it, but they're also stimulating the plant to produce more of it. That's pretty smart. Very smart. Very smart. Um, okay. So obviously you are inevitably charmed by our protagonist bird. Um, so now I will introduce you to our villain. Our parasitic villain. Um, this is Passeromia longicornis. Um, and it is the larvae of this species. So, yeah, this, is, this parasite is the larval stage of a fly that is um, very closely related to your ordinary everyday house fly. Uh, but this fly parasitizes young birds and it does that by boring into the exposed skin of baby birds and then once it's in there it feasts on their bloods on on their blood and then the maggots get really fat and the baby birds eventually end up dying oh it sounds that sounds really unpleasant it sounds very unpleasant such smart and cute little birds i know I know, and and it, it's not just affecting a couple of these forty spotted partalotes. It's having um, truly decimating effects on the species. So it's killing um, up to f- nine out of ten partalotes in in some of the areas. So that's um yeah, that's a huge, huge decimation of the population of some of a population that's already at risk. Um, and you know, if this if the species was healthy and numbers were larger and stronger, then the parasite wouldn't be so much of an issue. Parasites are part of mm. the ecosystem. You know, we don't want to remove them, um, 
but because the numbers are so low and the population so fragmented, um, this fly larvae parasite is now threatening the survival, this, the entire survival of this, this species. So uh, now enter stage left researchers from the Difficult Birds Research Group from the Australian National University. The so Difficult Fernanda, Birds Research Group. Yes, the Difficult Birds Research Group. If you haven't heard Wait. of the Difficult Birds Research Group, you should definitely look them up online. They are fantastic. Way to uh, victim blame the birds there, <laughs> yeah. I think. <laughs> or is the research group difficult? Is it the... <laughs> no, no, it's the birds. Okay. They're, difficult, they're difficult birds. You know, like, um, you know, not... not not difficult in the way that they act with each other, I imagine, but more difficult as in the problems that face them oh, okay. are difficult, mm -hmm. you know? Okay, so um, our researchers, Fernanda Alves and Diane Stoyanovic, are working out the best and most effective way to help uh, protect the 40-spotted pardalote from attack by the um, maggot parasites. Um, and incredibly... They have figured out a way, and it's very clever. It involved, first of all, understanding that the pardalotes love to make soft, warm nests, as a lot of birds do. Um, but these nests are lined with stray feathers of other birds that they find on the forest floor. And, I mean, I don't spend all my time looking for feathers on the forest floor like um, a pardalote who's making their nest would, but you don't often find that many you know lovely feathers that would work well to line your nest so the paddleloids have quite a hard time you know it's time consuming and it's difficult work to try and find all these feathers yes um i don't know much about 40 spotted paddleloids but i've familiar with like some other spotted paddleloids that we see around in, uh -huh. in melbourne here and i know that they their nests are in burrows in the ground are these 40 spotted pardalotes also burrowing birds? No, these these birds um, uh, nest in trees. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they nest in trees and they nest in, um, um, have these like extremely warm, like feather lined nests. Okay. And so the researchers have decided to exploit the fact that the feathers are in short supply and bring in their own supply of feathers special feathers chicken feathers not just chicken feathers but sterilized chicken feathers that are laced with a bird's safe insecticide that stops the parasitic fly developing in their nest so um the researchers went about i guess you would say macgyvering or crafting um a chicken feather sort of shop front that was made from scrap wire some duct tape and some of those round plastic trays that you get at the bottom of pot plants um, and they've created what's effectively a sort of self-service feather dispenser uh, putting them in forests where the 40 spotted pardalotes were building their nests um, and according to the researchers it didn't take long before the pardalotes found these um, free and easily accessible building materials. Uh, in fact, their conversation article, um, which you can read online, includes the hilarious quote, our dispensers were as busy as the toilet paper aisle during a pandemic. <laughs> Lol researchers, I love it. <laughs> um, and 
when they went back to check, some of the birds' nests were um, at least partially, and some of them were almost mostly made from the medicated feathers. So, um, so I assume that basically, so the idea is to provide them with a supply of parasite-free feathers, yeah, and the parasite-ridden kind of wormy ones that would have got off the forest floor. Well, not just parasite-free, but ones that have insecticide mm. in them, so um, they are going to, um, you know, kill any potential parasites that could be in any of the other ones yeah um yeah so i'm sure you're wondering how the results went um and yeah whether more partilotes survived because of the pesticide treated chicken feathers um well yes they did survival of chicks dramatically improved in the nests built with the insecticide treated feathers and on average 95 percent of chicks from these birds that use the treated chicken feathers survived compared with 8% of the birds that used feathers without insecticide. So that's a huge, that's, that's a huge amazing. jump. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, so this is more than I guess a tenfold increase in nest survival. Um, and for anyone out there um, feeling sorry for the parasites and that's fair enough. Um, you know, everyone's got to make their way in the world. Um, never fear, there are other birds who also fall victim to these parasites. So it's not like this fly will be driven to extinction. Um, but what has happened, though, is that the researchers, through understanding their birdie behaviours, have managed to create this clever, cheap and wonderfully effective innovation that will hopefully give our 40-spotted partilote the best fighting chance. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. So many years ago, uh, December 2011, to be precise, um, I covered a story on Lost in Science about how cows seem to be able to detect the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, this was based on a study that showed that cows tend to orient themselves north-south when grazing. Uh, and the researchers also found the same effect 
with deer when the uh, kind of the imprints they leave in the ground or in the snow from lying down. Um, but of course, cows are not the only magnetic animals. Uh, you've probably heard, yes? I also did a story on bogong moths being able to, um, being able to fly and detect um, magnetic uh, magnetic fields to be able to orientate themselves. That is true. It's often seen uh, or believed to be um, observed, uh, hypothesized at least, in migratory animals like um, like birds as well are often believed to use um, yeah have a magnetic sense. This is called magnetoreception. Um, yeah, and it's like it's it has been observed or hypothesized in many species, but most recently in uh, our friendly domestic dogs. Apparently, That's exciting. Yeah, look, I didn't know this, but apparently it had long been known, well, you know, for a few years ago, that dogs align themselves with the Earth's magnetic field when they're urinating or defecating. Whoa, what? Yeah, this was a study in 2013 by Czech scientists who observed that uh, they observed that yeah, the dogs had this north-south alignment, and when there were variations in the magnetic field, then the dogs no longer aligned themselves as well. So they claim to have verified that dogs do indeed respond to the magnetic field. And is there any reason why they, why they do that while they're peeing and pooping? No, it's just kind of like suggesting that they, they at least can detect it. They don't really know why. Um, they chose that Because why not, behavior. maybe? Well, they chose that particular <laughs> behaviour because it was less likely to be influenced by other consistent things. So it's not like, as Stu said, someone waiting around a dog food tin or, you know, other things like could be affected the, the direction, you know, where dogs choose to pee and poo is fairly random generally or not apparently. But anyway, so this, there's a later study that's been published from the same group. It was published in June 2020 in eLife magazine, and it looked at how dogs actually navigate. So what they did, they put video cameras and GPS trackers onto dogs and took them on long walks into the forest. They would let the dogs run off chasing a scent or, you know, whatever dogs want to do. And then they would map the path that the dog took to leave and then return to their human. Now, sometimes the dogs just simply go out and return again along the same path. But other times, what they call scouting behavior, they will um, go out and then they'll take a shortcut back. And so they did this study over three years with 27 different dogs. And uh, on their walks, there were 223 times that dogs did this kind of scouting behavior. Um, they tried to take them to unfamiliar parts of the forest so that they wouldn't actually know a, a good path back. The owners hid when the dogs left. And there was an average around 1.1 kilometers for each run. So they're going a fair distance. And in 170 of those runs, one of the interesting things they observed was that before the dogs turned around to head back, they would run for about 20 meters along a north-south direction. So the researchers are theorizing that using this kind of north-south movement to orient orient themselves and then find a more direct route back home so look it's not definitive what they're going to try and do next is they're going to try and put magnets onto the dog's collars to see if that will disrupt their navigation um, this is this this technique has been tried before there was an experiment done um, it published in 1980 that trying to detect whether humans could navigate blindfolded but that is Look, that was controversial research, hasn't been reliably replicated, so we're still not sure about whether humans could do the same thing or not. Uh, because it is still not known how magnetoreception actually works. 
Uh, there are two main theories. There's one is that there's a protein called a cryptochrome, which is in the eyes, that responds to light, but also has a quantum chemical reaction that is affected by magnetic fields. Um, so that could allow you know animals potentially to be able to see magnetic fields. Um, the other one is that there are tiny pieces of a mineral called magnetite, which um, essentially functions as little tiny magnets. And this is sometimes found in animals have been found in birds' beaks. And so it's believed that that could be a way that animals use to, to navigate. Um, look, the most... Does that mean we need to start looking in dog noses? Well, these um, magnetite put is a, found in Put various... a magnet... Put a, sorry, put a magnet up against a dog nose and see if it sticks? Well, that's the thing. So these... Um, the magnetite is found, and the cryptochrome is found in other species as well. So it's in many animal species. Um, it is hard to say. No one has identified an actual magnetoreceptor, though. But the most reliable research is on certain bacteria that contain significant amounts of magnetite. And they are, have been observed to respond, say, to swim towards a bar magnet and this sort of thing. Um, they seem to use that to be able to distinguish between up and down because the Earth's magnetic field doesn't point directly along horizontally. It, you know, it's inclined into the ground. So then the bacteria can detect the direction of the field and sort of swim down towards say, the bottom and bury themselves in the mud. And they found that bacteria in the northern and southern hemisphere will go in opposite directions oh. to apply magnetic fields, showing that they actually yeah, are responding to what's happening in their local area. But yeah, that's that's like the bacteria is pretty sure that that's what's happening. When other animals, again, we haven't found the actual mechanism. And so it's really about looking at behavior, which can be quite tricky. Um, hence these kind of convoluted experiments that people do. Um, but yeah, it could actually exist in humans as well, because we have similar kind of infrastructure. You know, maybe that it is something that we, um, you know, we got evolutionarily inherited. Um, or it may be that we do have a magnetic sense. It's just sort of subconscious. So there's this um, geophysicist, um, Joe Kirschvink, who is at Caltech in the US, who is trying to detect this. He has built these big shielded boxes that he puts people in. He can control the, the magnetic fields within the box. And then he can measure, he's, what he's doing is measuring people's brain waves using an ECG. And he claims that he can detect a response when the magnetic field is in certain orientations. Um, and he claims that this shows that it's actually due to the magnetite rather than cryptochromes because it responds to the direction of the field, whereas cryptochrome responds to the presence of magnetic field, but not so much the polarized direction. But um, yeah, look, uh, he's done some, some experiments. Not everyone is completely convinced. I actually looked up his research track record to see whether he'd published anything this year on the topic. Our most recent research though is, he got distracted at scenes, he put out a paper on cleaning N95 respirators for reuse using ethanol and vacuum drying. So he's kind of got distracted onto COVID-19 related research as many people have been, obviously. But yeah, so he's doing that. Um, last year there was a very odd paper in the journal PLOS One in which Korean researchers claimed that hungry humans could orient themselves towards uh, a direction where they previously had food. <laughs> I don't think you need a magnet to do that, do you? No, they would like, have them like in a room, like blindfolded in a room, and they would, yeah, they would spin them around in a chair and they could point themselves... <laughs> This was published so in a proper journal. 
Hungry people can find the kitchen blindfolded, is what you're saying. Well, the thing was, it was, <laughs> look, it was quite an odd study. I mean, only only men seemed to be able to do this. They did what? on men and women, and it was only happened under a blue light. Oh so, my goodness! This is starting to sound like one of those crazy, um, one of those crazy Japanese. Wow. like TV shows or something like that. Okay, you want a crazy idea? See, in lockdown, I have been watching a lot of Star Wars, right? Uh, here we go. Okay. Yeah. So, um, okay, so these, we just said that the um, the bacteria are, have been reliably detected to respond to magnetic fields. Now, this could, seems like perhaps quite old evolutionarily, and it may even like predate the existence of eukaryotes, like us, multicellular organisms. Um, and of course, eukaryotes captured and assimilated bacteria to become the mitochondria in our cells. So, what if our mitochondria still have this magnetic ability? So, you know, just like the midi chlorians respond to the force, perhaps our mitochondria can detect magnetic fields. Hey, does this sound like a just just as I ignore that that film exists? I'm going to ignore that okay, you said fair that. Fair enough. <laughs> Look, okay. So the point is, the point is that we don't know how animals like dogs or birds or bogong moths exactly we don't know exactly how they respond to magnetic fields we don't always know reliably it can be difficult to demonstrate that they are particularly in humans at least we can ask you uh yeah look it is it is reliable to is difficult to reliably detect that but so if we do have this sense it must be something quite subtle and something we're not consciously aware of but it is intriguing that if it does exist perhaps we could actually train ourselves and learn to sense magnetic fields. And then we would have this new ability that we could use for, I don't know. Um, Na- navigation. Fighting the kitchen. <laughs> As you said, Stu. So, uh, you use, the, use the magnetic force, Chris. Yeah, that's right. So uh, something to think about. Like I said, maybe um, you can try when you're walking the dog in lockdown, you can see what direction they go into to poo. Um, yeah, that's something you can look at, or you can, you know, see when they go off an adventure, how they find their way back to you, and think about whether the dog is actually following their own internal compass. Yes, Claire. So, what would we expect? Say we're out walking our dogs. What would we expect the dog to? How would they orient themselves? Uh, well, so you'd have to look at what the the magnetic field is in local magnetic field in your direction. Now you can find. Uh, I can't know, know what the website would be, but I'm sure you can find out the the difference between the Earth's magnetic field and your local true north. I think it's about 11 degrees difference in Australia, and see whether they are orienting themselves in that. It um look, it was more shown more in female dogs for for peeing. Uh, male dogs because they pee differently to female dogs. They were a bit less reliable on it, but the the peeing and the pooing posture for females is quite similar. So yeah, both both male and female dogs would poo in north-south, um, but uh, yeah, it's more pronounced for peeing for female dogs. Um, look, it can vary if there are disruptions to the local magnetic field as well, but it is just something to worth keeping an eye on of what's your dog pooing and see which direction they're facing.
that's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time if you want to get in touch with us you can email us you can find us on twitter and facebook we are broadcast across australia on the community radio network with the financial assistance of the community broadcasting foundation and if you would like to tune in next week chris Stu, and claire will get locked in science listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.